Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Charmaine Wilkerson. She's a former journalist whose award-winning short stories have appeared in various magazines and anthologies. She's originally from New York, but she's now based in Rome, Italy, and her debut book called Black Cake has just entered the world. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You and I couldn't be farther apart. You're on the west coast of the U.S. <laughs> and I'm in Rome. I know. The nine-hour time difference uh, also spans the, the whole globe. This is a global show, right? Well, <laughs> I loved your book. Um, I would describe it as a story of, well, fundamentally family, but also identity and secrets, of course. But since I've read the book, and most people haven't yet because it's brand new, can you describe, give us a little outline of what it's about? Yeah, thank you. Black Cake is a multi-generational story. So the main thing you need to know is that it goes back and forth between the past and the present. In the past, it's mostly the Caribbean and the United Kingdom, a bit in the United States. And the present day really centers primarily around Byron and Benny, a brother and sister from California who were once inseparable, are not talking to one another. There's been a huge rift in their family and they're forced to come together after being apart for a number of years because their mother has just died. Now they, of course, have to deal with all of that, but there's also a puzzle. Their mother has left them this puzzling inheritance sitting in her freezer, a small black cake. She also leaves them a long voice recording on a USB pen drive in which she doesn't answer the question directly of why the cake, but she does give the context and really shares a series of surprising revelations about her life that will change not only the way in which Byron and Benny see their mother, but also the ways in which they're going to have to live their own lives. And they're also going to have to take action on some of what she says. Yes. Like you said, jumps back and forth, the past and the present. So we spend as much time in the book getting to know the mother, even though she's no longer with us in the present day, which is interesting. Uh, I was just listening to two authors yesterday talk about the challenge of having a book center around somebody who is not actually alive anymore in the course of the book. And I think you did a really, really wonderful job. Um, What sparked the idea for starting this project in the first place for you? Well, it's interesting what you say about the past versus the present and people who are no longer around, because I always write in scenes and I was all over the place with a number of things that I thought were short stories or maybe the beginnings of some kind of novel when I realized that a lot of those scenes went together. And that was the beginning of the novel in earnest. So to sort of go back to the idea of the past, the first scenes that I remember writing were in the past. The people who were, who in theory might no longer be around in the present, we don't know at the beginning of the book. It centers around these two teenage girls on the cusp of womanhood in the 1960s on a Caribbean island. They are exceptionally strong physically. They have a deep connection to the natural world and they're obsessed with swimming in the sea. All of this will make them different from other kids of their day 
and will also raise some serious challenges. You know, they're not quite the way people expect them to be. Mm. And also this exceptional strength and their vision, their sort of passion for the sea will change their lives. It will actually directly affect their destinies and the destinies of other people. So when you say, how did that begin? It just began with a scene of these two girls swimming, 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 arm over arm, out in the sea. And it was more of a feeling of exceptional drive and what the consequences would be for those young people. But of course, the black cake has a whole other story, which I can tell you in a minute or now, as mm-hmm. you wish. Yeah, I mean, we definitely should get to that because I, I was, um, but since you're talking about them swimming and and how much that that is going to affect the course of their lives, one of the things that you get into a lot in this story is, and something that people I think grapple with listening to this show a lot, is the distance between what you your ambitions for yourself are or what your interests are and the life that other people tell you you should be living or that you feel you should be living because of however you were raised, that tension is palpable through your entire book. What would you say about that? Well, there are a number of different characters in this book. I think in the present day alone, there may be nine characters. I don't want to scare the reader, but, um, <laughs> but there are a lot of people in this book. There are the three main characters, Byron, Benny, and their mother, Eleanor, but then there are these secondary characters. And something they all really have in common is what you touched on. And that is they're running up against the expectations and stereotypes of other people. And their lives are very directly affected by the fact that many of them just don't fit into the boxes that they're supposed to be fitting into according to other people, based on the way they look, based on their family background, based on their gender. And that's going to happen in the present day as well. So this is one of the things that I wouldn't say I set out to write about this, but that was kind of in the back of my mind as I wrote that first scene, this idea of you think you know who you are, you know what drives you, and then there's the rest of the world. And how do you reconcile the two? Mm. Well, how, how has that appeared in your life? Do you have an example for you? Well, you know, I'm one of those people who prefer always to talk about the fictional world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly, uh, certainly in my life, I've, I've had occasions where, you know, people have a certain view of you or they have expectations of the way in which um, they think you'd be living. Or they, based on your description, you know, the fact that I come from a multicultural family uh, where, you know, probably no two of us have had quite the same upbringing or even look alike there's often been a lot of, you know, who are you and how do people see you? And then what do they expect of you based on that? And I was sort of guilty of uh, having my own expectations on a certain occasion that actually led to me thinking about black cake as kind of a symbol. Should I tell you about that? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause it's also, it's, it's food, but it's also heritage. It is. It is. So, you know, I mentioned that I come from a multicultural family, but in my parents' generation, most people were from the Caribbean or they were Caribbean American or had lived in the UK. So I um, got a text message on my cell phone one day from a younger member of my family, the next generation, asking for my mother's black cake recipe because my mother made a legendary 
rum pudding or rum cake, as we called it. And I was surprised because I thought, ah, oh, wouldn't have thought that he'd care. And um, that just led me to scribble some things in my own sort of personal notes mm. about the idea of what we choose to inherit, what we hold close to our hearts, how food and other cultural markers are handed down and which ones help us to shape our identities. So that was my note about the black cake. Put it away, a few years pass, I'm writing these other stories. I realize that a story from the past is connected to a story from the present. I'm writing, a, you know, writing now what I think is a novel about family secrets and um, surprises. And all of a sudden there's a black cake. Hmm. The black cake just sort of nudges its way in and wants to be a character. And I sort of had an aha moment in which I recognized why something like that black cake and the recipe could carry weight in a story about family identity relationships, you know? Mm. And mm. It's, it's interesting how the mind works. You know, I did not set out to write a story about cake or black cake. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting because it also becomes a symbol for and I'm not going to give away any of the secrets that the the two siblings find out about their mother, but it does become a symbol both for how they understand their mother, but also as they come to know her background better through the voice memo she leaves, a realization maybe that of what they do and do not know about their own heritage, about where they come from as people. Yes, yes. And one of the things also is it's not just about heritage, it's also about you know, we were talking before about people's expectations, stereotypes. You know, often children, even when they're grown, think that the parents don't, don't quite see them, don't quite get them, or might not have had the experiences that they are having at the time, when often it's the other way around, or mm. also the other way around. You know, um, in the case of Black Cake, you have two adults. They are now grown. You know, Byron's in his 40s and Benny's in her 30s when the story begins. And they really have no clue as to what their parents went through. The revelation of their mother's past helps them to sort of shift their views of the relationships they had with her and the misunderstandings that took place in their family. But there is also this question of secrets of why the mother decided not to tell anybody. And um, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, um, just in thinking about my own ancestors, about how many secrets we don't share in the course of a lifetime. And and sometimes now with one of my grandmothers being dead or, uh, you know, her grandparents, I wish that somebody had just at the end said, and here's all the stuff you didn't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish that we had sometimes had that access to those secrets. And so something I've been really contemplating a lot in some of the readings and writings I'm doing is how do you know how much to reveal and not reveal? And is is that something that you grappled with in this story or something that you've thought about in your own life? Well, certainly in my own life, because I, again, I come from a family where, you know, a family of movers, I call us, where over three generations there's been migration, I myself, without having a specific need, moved to another country. And my own parents, you know, came from parents who in turn had histories where either they had moved or they had changed relationships or they didn't know the full story of their own parents. 
So I have always been fascinated by this idea of how our identities are shaped by stories and also the stories that are not told and what happens when they're revealed. So yes, I mean, it's interesting. I think because I, maybe I'm not curious enough because I grew up that way. <laughs> I just I just sort of accept a lot of that, but it did, it did have me thinking about more the impact, not what the details of the stories would be, but the impact. And you asked me before whether there was something from my life which had me thinking about the issues of the ways in which people saw me, for example, or other things. And one detail that I do think is interesting is simply as I grew older, as I became an adult and had lived as an adult long enough to be recognized vaguely as such by my own parents, I noticed that sometimes one story which I'd heard that was one way emerged as another story with new details. Why? Because suddenly perhaps they felt they could speak to me as an adult, hmm. you know? And so it's not that people necessarily intend to keep secrets. Sometimes they don't have the information. Sometimes they don't think it matters. Sometimes they simply are editing themselves based on... You know, you don't talk to children about certain things, but maybe if the topic comes up again as an adult, it comes out. I do think there is an issue, and this is not at all a comment on anyone in my life because I don't think I'm in the position to make that kind of comment, but I can make that comment on the fictional characters in Black Cake. And that is certainly in the case of at least two characters, there's an element of shame right? No one ever really uses, well, yeah, maybe someone uses the word shame later, but it's not that they think of it as shame, but it is, it is a kind of shame. And so you conceal, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, since you, I believe I read in the author note that your, your relatives and your parents lived in Jamaica, but then they emigrated to the US and to the UK. And now you're in Italy. Uh, why did you move to Italy? You know, just personal reasons. And I know you lived in Italy as well. And I like to joke that people either move to Rome specifically to study art history or for love. And I'm not an art historian, <laughs> you know, so, so that's really it. You know, I moved for personal reasons, but it's funny how things happen in life, you know, Katie, because when I was at college at Barnard College in New York, which is part of Columbia University, they have a Casa Italiana there. And um, I had a chance to study a new language. And I thought, oh, I'll try Italian. And we had a teacher, a professor, who was reading just some very interesting excerpts from literature. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard poetry by Eugenio Montale, things like that. And I just started thinking about the language and thinking, this is interesting. I had my own stereotype of what Italian was. And I was beginning to learn that it could be as malleable, maybe different from English, but as malleable as I thought my own mother tongue was, because I think English is particularly, you know, we can play with English quite a bit. Um, and so it was fascinating and I kept studying and I didn't speak Italian, you know, particularly well, but I had some understanding. And so that sort of led me into, um, deciding to move to Italy, you know, I started a relationship, ended up here, moved back to the U.S. and came back again. Well, and how has it altered your life to live in Rome? Well, I think everything is different. But, you know, I don't know any life but my own. 
I have lived in the US. I spent some time in Jamaica as a child as well. I've lived on both coasts of the United States. What I know is that my destiny and my life are completely affected by the fact that I first got on a plane when I was three years old and keep traveling, you know, even now. So I don't know what I would have been like otherwise. I do know that I would love to spend more time going back and forth. I think that's the lesson I've learned in living in Rome for longer than I had intended is that, yes, you do. It's, it's not easy. It may not be practical for a lot of people, but for some of us, you do need to be able to go back and forth if it's possible. Well, and one thing we were talking about before we started recording was that there is a challenge in being a writer who writes in English, living in an Italian-speaking country, that uh, I, I guess I take for granted that when I'm writing over here, I have a writing community of people who are also writing in English, so that you can share ideas back and forth with each other. How, is, how has that been? How do, you, how do you make it work for yourself over there? Well, you know, I did find um, sometimes I felt quite isolated because, well, I had, you know, I was day jobbing, so I was also busy. But sometimes I felt that if I met other writers, that they might be interested in writing other kinds of stories. I had my own stereotype that people who were in Italy in Rome writing were either at a level of having published a number of uh, books and maybe they were with the American Academy or they were professors or doing their own thing. And there may have been other people who were more at my level, but they might tend to write expat narratives, which are great. I mean, I have also tried to write stuff that really look at that unusual existence, you know, of being between two cultures and sort of feeling you're at home in a place, but feeling more of another. And I thought, well, gee, yeah, what I'm writing I'm just following my nose, exploring characters, and how do I share that? And that may have been my own, my own attitude, but what I found was helpful was really getting away from my environment here and being completely immersed, as if in a foreign language, but being completely immersed in my mother tongue. So mm. going to residential programs where I'd spend a week with other people, or um, I actually went away for as long as a month at one point. And that's how I sort of got into the regular writing, because it's something that I had always wanted to do, had always said I was doing. But in truth, I really only dedicated the time several years ago to really trying to learn, really trying to write more often. Yes, I so relate to your background. Your background is so similar to mine, although, uh, you know, because you're a journalist. You love to write short stories. I was a radio journalist. I don't know what kind of journalist you were. You can tell me. But but yeah, that combination of you're writing short stories, you're very interested in writing, but you're also like writing for, I'm writing for voice all the time, but you're writing for a certain kind of thing, you know, and then you have this dream where you think someday I might want to write a book, but you know, you have no evidence that you could actually write a book. You just have evidence that you can write, <laughs> you know. What kind of journalist were you and, and how did you approach I mean, you said you came about this kind of bit by bit, and maybe that was the success of it. Well, um, you know, even when I was in college, I knew I wanted to write stories, but I was young, and I think I had to think practically, and what was I going to do for a living, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I loved radio, speaking of voice. I loved radio, discovered college radio, ended up working for the first uh, part of my career as an on-air television reporter. I worked in TV. So writing short stories and having to 
already know ahead of time pretty much what I needed to write. Even if I discovered new things or had new information, I knew that the story was about Katie winning the lottery. Okay, so then I go and interview Katie. I knew it was something like that. Then I moved into working in various kinds of communication for other people and mostly behind the scenes. So helping other people to write everything from speeches to news releases, etc. Again, what these things had in common was already starting with an idea of why you were writing, what you wanted to write, how much time you had, how much space you had. The difference between everything I've done and the way in which I write fiction is huge because I'm very much a person who just follows my nose into fiction. And I felt that it was necessary to allow myself to sort of slip into the fictional dream. Maybe other people can do it, but I really needed to just unlatch the mind and just not think about what I was writing. And I still write that way. Sure, then I have a project, but I write my way into the project. Mm. And then I get to a certain point where I say, okay, what am I writing here? And if Katie wins the lottery, why in the world would she buy an old beat up pickup truck? Now, what makes that plausible? I need to go back into her history. So that's what I do. Mm. But by then I've already got Katie wins the lottery and wants to buy a beat up old pickup truck. Maybe it's a vintage pickup truck. And then maybe I need to do research on that vintage pickup truck. What year, what kind of tires? So I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of babbling with this silly example, but that's, ex that's exactly how I get my way into a story before I really start to think about writing fiction as a project, a book. Yeah. How about you? How does, how does it work for you? That's so interesting. I was just thinking too, I was thinking about your book and if it, if it has a central question or not when you were saying that. And well, I can answer your question too, but I was just thinking about it in relation to this podcast like when we started it of course it had a much smaller scope than it has today but people often ask about well, why do I keep making it or why do I do it when I no longer live in a foreign country when I you know I'm just back in Seattle and I often think that when I work on something for a long period of time there's central questions that I'm trying to answer for myself and I think that one of them at its fundamental was am I a person who is brave enough to make the change that I'm talking about other people making is that me ah, you know um this is yeah and then slowly over time because it's you know you only can see how much you've evolved in hindsight but slowly over time you realize I've already answered the central question yes I am now brave enough but I came about that by doing this show you know and so then the central question has to shift in some way so when you say the central question in other words the show helps you to write other kinds of material that are not strictly journalism on predetermined points. Is that what you're saying? Well, maybe. I, I mean, it means many things, I think. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to start the show at the very beginning was I came from an NPR background, which is, you know, like you said, it has it has a very particular manner to it. And uh, I wanted to say, well, can you make a show that's as intelligent as that, but is more casual than that, more fun, more personal? And it was really hard for me to just be, you know, widely personal because I was used to having to like rein it in to a certain degree. Hence why Tiffany was such a help, because she was like, I don't know. I have no experience. I'm happy to be personal. <laughs> you know? like, um, that's great. Yeah. This, this is so interesting to hear because you're right. We have that in common. And that is you know, my mind was very task oriented. 
And I think that any kind of journalism, you know, where you go out into the community, especially with broadcasting, because now we're speaking over the miles and time zones, but so often you would have to physically go and meet people, mm -hmm. if, especially if you want to take pictures. Um, and I think it's a wonderful way to get into your community. It's a wonderful way to start learning things, even if the even if you half learn things and even if the, there are more questions, you know, it's it's a wonderful way to participate. I think that's the word I'm looking for in one's community, I think. The interesting thing to me is that when you said that one of the questions that might come up is why, if you no longer live in Rome, you are still doing a podcast which somehow connects to Rome. And the funny thing is I thought I knew the answer right away because it connects back to one of the central questions in Black Cake, the story of Black Cake. And that is, once you have moved, once you have lived somewhere else, once you have lived as someone else, in the case, for example, of Lynn, the immigrant, I won't go into too much of that, mm -hmm. but Lynn, who moves from one place to another, you can no longer be one person without being the other. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps to someone looking from the outside, they see a person who lives in Seattle who's doing a podcast about Rome. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but what I see is someone who is speaking to different sides of her experience. And now this is your world. And many people live like that. It may not involve Rome. It may not involve Seattle. This is an issue of identity. You know, we live between worlds. It's not that we don't feel at home in one place or prefer to be in another, but each place becomes part of us, you know? Yes, to bigger and lesser degrees. Because the interesting thing is, I would say, you know, I spent two years in um, San Francisco and my time in San Francisco is almost as important as this one month I spent in New Orleans. And so obviously this two cities did not impact me in this in the same way. As much deciding where to be as where not to be. But you're right that we get these mixed up identities once you make big changes like that. I mean, yeah. in going back to the writing, uh, I mean, and in, in radio and journalism, I think I've often been directed by, you know, what do I personally want to know about? And like you were saying with your character, if Katie wins the lottery and she buys a rusty old pickup truck, that's the fun sort of stuff in fiction that it is to explore is throwing in some weird element. I was just writing a scene. I've been attempting to write my own fiction book. And I had these characters where, you know, they were just poor. And it was fine, but it was boring. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, this seems boring. It also seems stereotypical. And I have absolutely no real interest in this mother character. And so I was like, well, what if what if she is the mother character is is poor, but is pretending that she's wealthy? Now, that's so much more interesting to write a person who's like that than um, a person who's just, you know, downtrodden and trying to make it. And just by changing that, all of a sudden I thought, now this is fun. This is a fun story to write now. It also opens the, and it depends if it's a comic story, but it could also be like some of the Italian films in sort of the immediate post-war period. You had people who were really struggling and they were trying to, um, you know, put on a good front because maybe someone's daughter met some really well-off fellow from another country and the, the whole neighborhood would mobilize to make everything look good. And 
a, a situation like that could be both fun, but also re really make comments on the way things are, what you need to do, what you think you need to do mm -hmm. to make a good impression, you know, what that takes. Well, it also adds a level of danger of at any moment, when is the little house of cards going to, is it going to fall or will they be able to pull this off? Hi, it's Katie and Tiffany. We're breaking in just to tell you of a very special meetup that's coming very soon. We're going to be doing a live gathering online on Saturday, the 12th of March. And of course, since this is an international show, the time might vary, but if you're in Seattle like Katie, it's going to be an early one at 9 a.m. That means if you're in New York or anywhere on the East Coast, it'll be noon. If you're in Rome like me, it'll be 6 p.m. I guess you can figure out whatever time you're in based on that. Yes. And who's going to be invited? Well, first of all, our supporters on Patreon. Yes. And also our longtime supporters over on PayPal, people who donate every month, along with our major donors, people who have donated quite a bit to the show. Those three groups are going to be invited to this meetup. We hope that you can come. And if you're not one of those three groups, there are ways to join us. Yes, there are ways to become a member of one of those three groups. If you go over to patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast, Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can sign up as low as at the $5 a month level and you will be invited. That's right. And there are links to donate in the show notes or visit thebittersweetlife.net. We hope to see you there. Now back to the show. What do you think about the role of memory when it comes to your characters? Well, memory is definitely a combination of, for example, going back again to the central characters, Byron and Benny in the present day begin to learn about their mother. So clearly she is now imparting memory to them. But then there are also um, other ideas of memories. What do you share? What don't you share? And also what you feel you've lost. So in, in the past, there are people who lose things or their lives are disrupted. And going forward in time, they are haunted by memory, haunted constantly, but in small ways. And so I think certainly in Black Keg, the role of memory is also interesting in that there's this kind of, you know, someone will have a thought at a certain moment. I won't go into too much detail, but as you know, there is a world famous champion endurance swimmer in this story. And she's a secondary character, but when she goes out there in the water, what does she visualize? What does she think about? And it takes her right back to the greatest, I don't know if it's the sorrow or regret, but the greatest doubt of her life. When you talk about that, you know, maybe the fundamental fear, I think a lot of people, when they think about writing a book or starting a big project or something like that, and I know this from having a journalistic background, the fear is, I don't know that I can do it. So I'm not sure I actually want to try to do it. But for you, now that you have done it, do you think that that will change how you approach writing going forward? Uh, certainly, I still have the same basic way of writing fiction in that I do still write in scenes. But for example, now I have another long project in mind and I'm still writing in scenes, but it's a project and I will put scenes in files. So I have my Katie and the pickup scenes 
and then I'll have my, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I do that. And um, I wouldn't say that that part has changed. Certainly, I had no idea how many other things there would be to do once you actually published a book. So that's a learning process. And it's wonderful. Perhaps in my case, having really, really gotten to this after having worked on other careers and not being sure how it will work out, there's that sense that I know I have some people who are supporting me and who are saying, go ahead, you know, keep writing. Um, but I think it's a mystery every time. I think it's an act of exploration. It really is an act of exploration. I think the most important thing that I do, probably because I have no choice, because it's my style, but I really think it's valid for other people to consider is stop thinking about writing the book. Don't think about what you're writing, just write. Write first, ask questions later. Yes, at a certain point, you need to get organized. You need to, you know, you have other things going on in your life and you need to think about where you're going. You need to do research maybe. But I really do think that people should not worry themselves so much by saying, I have to write a book. No, do you feel you need to write? Then you have to write. Start there. Work on where you're going and what you want to develop, but don't think about this huge project. It's like running a marathon. You know, I've run marathons. And people always think, oh, my goodness, you ran a marathon. How did you do that? Well, you don't do that. You just go out and run a few miles every day. And sometimes you run more miles. And then you get to the marathon. It's not that you, you know, some people can do it, but it's not that most people say, okay, I'm running a marathon. Here's the marathon. It's every day. What you do, what you eat, how you sleep, with whom you run, when you work. And I think writing has to be seen as that, that we are inspired by emotions and ideas and the things that we see or hear, but we must break through the myth that you're only a writer if you're sitting there waiting from, you know, waiting for that idea to descend and that it must be whole and that it must be coherent from the first moment. I think that can only drive a person a little mad, you know, and instead just keep writing because you will get there just as you do when you train for a marathon or people who, for example, have a pregnancy all those months. Well, you know, you're going through a process of change and it doesn't happen in one moment. It starts and keeps going, you know? Yeah. And one thing that you say in your author's note, actually, is that, and I'll quote you, actually, it says, not everyone sits down to write a book, but everyone is a storyteller. Absolutely. We all have the stories in us. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, we are going to be giving away one copy of this book for free to one of our listeners. Unfortunately, it's one of you guys in the U.S., so sorry, international folks. We are only doing this as a U.S. giveaway, but um, if you're interested in trying to win a copy, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, or Facebook. Tiffany will put out some sort of call, uh, some way to participate, to throw your hat in the ring to get a free copy. And of course, Black Cake is now in stores uh, everywhere and online, so look for it. Charmaine Wilkerson, thank you so much for joining us on the show and for writing this great book, Black Cake. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. You could sponsor this show and reach educated, curious, and compassionate listeners all over the world. Visit thebittersweetlife.net and click support to get the conversation started. <laughs>